The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Cornell University or its employees. Welcome to another episode of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Today, we are speaking with Jasmine Jay and Wei Kuang Wang, colleagues in Cornell's Faculty and Staff Assistance Program, also known as FSAP or FSAP. We will talk with them about the services FSAP provides, how mental health considerations in the workplace have evolved over time, and what role each of us has in creating a workplace community that truly supports mental health and well-being. My name is Toral Patel. And my name is Erin Sembuchis. And you're listening to the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Well, welcome, Way and Jasmine. We are so happy to have you with us today. Uh, really looking forward to our conversation. If you could please first just introduce yourselves, if you want to say what your pronouns are, and share how long you've been at Cornell and what your current role is at Cornell. My name is Wei Kuang Wang. Um, everyone just calls me Wei for short. I, I use the he, him, his pronouns, and I am the director of the faculty and staff assistance program. Um, I've been there for about a year. But prior to that, I was at CAPS, Counseling and Psychological Services, for 23 years. So I've been at Cornell since 1999, which is a little mind-blowing because it just seems like a really, really long time. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Jasmine Jay. My pronouns are she, her. I am the lead clinical administrative assistant at the Faculty and Staff Assistance Program, also known as FSAP. And I've been at Cornell for I guess it would be nine years, going on nine years in various roles. I've been the lead clinical administrative assistant at FSAP for maybe five years in June. Um, but before that, I taught at Cornell. I was an MFA student at Cornell. Um, and so I've worn a few different hats. Well, welcome to both of you. Uh, as Aaron mentioned, we are so excited to have this conversation um, as we get started, in the interest of getting to know both of you a little bit better, can you just maybe just lead us and give us a more detail about your professional journey and what has led you to FSAP? Yeah, I'll go first. Um, so like I said, I've done a lot of different things. When I came to Cornell, it was to study poetry in the creative writing department. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I did that. Um, I wrote an original collection of poetry as part of my MFA thesis. And then um, during that part of my life, I was pretty convinced that I wanted to be a professor of literatures and mm -hmm. English. And then I actually did end up teaching for a couple of years as part of the program stipulations. And I taught creative writing. I taught horror films at one point. Wow. And yeah, yeah <laughs> after that journey, um, I had been working with predominantly white classrooms um, whose racial and, and, and gender and sexuality literacy was very low. Um, and after that experience and, and being a young black woman at the head of classrooms that were often predominantly white, I frankly decided that I needed a bit of a break from academia. Mm -hmm. um, and funnily enough, I had been seeing one of the FSAP counselors for my own therapy. Uh -huh. um, that counselor, Dr. Martha Guzman, um, is no longer at Cornell. But at the time, she was like, yeah, so you're job hunting and we have an opening. You should apply. Wow. And I did. Yeah. <laughs> and now wow. I'm here. Yeah. And it's been a really interesting and rich journey. What a great path, right? It like It's felt like a messy path, yeah. frankly. <laughs> but <laughs> I'll take great on this morning. 
How about you, Wei? Um, you know, I thought about this a little bit, uh, and I guess it depends on how far back you want to go. I mean, this was not part of some some grand plan, you know, that I mm. had my sights set on FSAP, you know, years back. Um, I think when I was a kid, I um, I wanted to be an engineer, I think. You know, I liked airplanes. I used to build model airplanes, and I wanted to, you know, build things. But I think at some point during my teens, I became aware of, the, like, the stereotype of Asians as, like, just being good math, science, and engineering. Mm. Uh, and I think I, I kind of unconsciously resented that and resisted that. And so I told myself that I hated math and science. You know, I told myself that that I'm not good at STEM. Wow. Uh, and so, um, but I was still kind of a nerd, mm-hmm. you know. So I kind of gravitated towards social sciences because I thought that was kind of different and it was not what was expected of me. And so um, I still had very vague notions. I had no idea what I wanted to do with that interest. You know, and so I just sort of like putzed along Um, when I went to college. I'm a first generation college student. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, You know, I had no guidance. I I did not know what career paths were really available to me. So I just kind of took what was interesting to me. And I eventually graduated with a degree in sociology, but I still had no idea what I wanted to do. You know, I had some vague notion. I think academia would be kind of cool, some kind of doctor, but like not like one of the real kinds. <laughs> but I, again, I, I didn't really have a, a clearly formed notion. So I kind of got whatever job I could get that, you know, with a you know liberal arts degree right out of college, which was a, a job working with developmentally disabled adults. And I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, I love that work. That's still one of my favorite jobs of all time. My very first job is probably still one of my favorite jobs of all time. And there was a, there was a psychologist there on staff that encouraged me to, to consider psychology as a career field. So that's really the first time I really sort of like seriously considered psychology as, as like a career. Uh, and I had a, a series of jobs uh, after that, you know, again, with different sort of like nonprofits uh, working with, again, I think with uh, chronically mentally ill adults. And also, this was um, in the early 90s, so I was working with um, individuals with HIV, you know, a lot of whom were were, uh, uh, ex-drug users. And then after a couple of years of that, I kind of hit a ceiling, you know, and um, I decided, no, maybe I want to go to graduate school. You know, I started considering graduate school. I considered um, social work and actually did apply to some social work programs. But dang it, you know, there's there's still the Chinese in me that says, you know what? You should be a doctor, dude. Your you ancestors know? reached back. You know, I, I, just, I just couldn't escape that. You know? like, no matter how much you resisted. <laughs> I know. They, they always pull you right back, you know. And so, um, and so yeah, so I um, then applied to, uh, you know, doctorate programs in, in clinical psych. Uh, and one of them was <laughs> dumb enough to accept me. Uh, and, and so that's how I got into clinical psychology. It wasn't some, some long-formed, you know, mm. passion or anything like that. And then after grad school, I just wanted a job in a nice community. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and again, I didn't have my sights set particularly in college counseling, although uh-huh. that was uh, that was certainly a, an attractive option. And Cornell offered me a job, uh, and um, Ithaca turned out to be a pretty nice place to live. And so I stayed. So after 20-something years, there was this opening at FSAP, and... Um, Voila, here I am. Yeah. <laughs> what I find interesting about both your stories is that where you have ended up, you didn't necessarily set out for those, you know, no. you didn't set out for that, but they, somehow they found you. Yeah. Right? They found you. And I, I think that that's really a nice message because, you know, when particularly when you're in higher ed, I don't care whether you're a student or whether you're staff or whether you're a faculty, I think we can all kind of fall victim to this idea that you have to know exactly where mm-hmm. you're going, right? right? Mm-hmm. What, your, what your end goal is, and you have, you know, you've mm-hmm. got to be driven to get there and to achieve it. And yep. I love that you were offering <laughs> a different perspective that maybe sometimes we need to let it 
find us yeah. and not feel like we have to know. Right. And that there's more than one path. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And you can start yes. down one path and veer off into completely you know, something completely different. Yeah. yeah, definitely. So so you have ended up at FSAP, FSAP, however we want to call it. Um, so for the folks out there who don't know what that is, can you tell us more about what that office is at Cornell and you know what role they serve for the Cornell population? Why would somebody utilize FSAP? Well, FSAP is basically the employee assistance program for Cornell University. And, and what we provide is time-limited counseling support for all you know, benefits-eligible employees who work here uh, you know, uh, down, in, down in New York City or, or any of the extensions around the state. Uh, and so uh, we can provide up to 10 free counseling sessions per academic year for a variety of issues, which we can get into later. Um, and so our bread and butter is really individual counseling. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we spend uh, most of our time doing. But we also do a number of other things. We also consult with people leaders or managers. You know, oftentimes they're concerned with, you know, uh, someone that they work with, you know, uh, who may be struggling with different issues and they're not quite sure how to approach it or, or, or how to help this person. Uh, and so we can also consult with them then and brainstorm with them about how we can best support the person, what kind of resources are available. Uh, oftentimes we brainstorm about, well, you know, this person might be reluctant to come to FSAP. You know, how do we try to encourage this person as best we can to seek out support and, and help and, you know, how you might word, you know, that kind of conversation. Um, we also do things like, you know, after a crisis, oftentimes after uh, an employee has passed away or, or something terrible like that, uh, we do also provide some postvention uh, services. You know, oftentimes we'll help coordinate getting people into our services as quickly mm-hmm. as possible. And oftentimes we'll do um, community support meetings which is where we, you know, hold the space for the people who are affected, usually a department or something like a program, you know. Uh, we, we hold space for people to share the stories, to talk about what happened, to share the reactions, provide one another support, and to talk again about how they can sort of like best take care of themselves and navigate whatever situation that they're dealing with. And so those are some of the basic services, mm-hmm. you know, that we provide. And, you know, sometimes we also do things, you know, we'll do like a workshop or a presentation or things of that nature. I really like hearing about all the different things because I think like any t- you know, like anything, when people hear the word therapy or counseling, they tend to just think about one on one. You're sitting there with a the therapist and, and I like hearing about the ways that you facilitate opportunities for people to process things. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you, you yeah. guys you do it all. Yeah. Yeah, one thing that I'm actually surprised about, which I had I did not know, um, was the the services that you offer to supervisors, managers, and leaders. Right, I mm-hmm. think that is phenomenal. Uh, what a great opportunity for leaders to kind of help, you know, improve members of their teams. That's a yeah. that's a great opportunity too. Yeah, because oftentimes you guys are the, the the eyes and ears. I mean, you guys see problems, you know, earlier than anybody else, uh, and you guys are often at times in, in the best position to to help a person. I also wanted to add, and I forgot to say this earlier too, our services are also open to the partners of employees. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, I did not know. You know, so, wow. so, so we're open to all partners, uh, uh, retirees. We also see couples. Mm-hmm. Forgive me if I don't want to tell my husband that. Complain <laughs> <laughs> about me. <laughs> but good to know that. Yeah. Right. If he wanted to, he could. <laughs> Well, I think that when you talk about all the services you all provide, it really speaks to how I think the subject of mental health has really evolved in terms of how we talk about it, um, you know, how we discuss it uh, in our society. 
Uh, we also know that mental health challenges are very, very real in our country and in our world, and there has been increased attention and discussion around that. Just in the last year, we've heard our, our Surgeon General and the Center for Disease Control and Prevention talk about mental health crisis as a global public health issue, which I'm not sure I've ever heard it talked about that way, but it really kind of hits home just how prevalent this is and, and how much people are dealing with it. So I'd love to know from you all, how have you seen, you know, Jasmine, you've been in FSAP for five years or more, right, mm -hmm. where you've been in the field for a very long time. How have you seen the conversations around mental health change and evolve over time, particularly within the workplace? Mm, I think that for the time I've been at FSAP, I have seen campus conversations about mental health really evolve. Mm -hmm to something that addresses mental health as a campus-wide concern. Um, when I stepped into my role at the FSAP in 2019, um, a very pivotal time, as we now know, looking back with hindsight, um, FSAP to me was discussed by campus leadership as something that could assist an employee at the individual level. Um, and mental health care for employees were seen as something that it was almost as if the conversation was, okay, mental health is a part of self-care and self-care is something that is your individual responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, and now, and perhaps with the evolution of the pandemic, I mean, I came to FSAP in June of 2019. And so by winter of 2020, I mean, campus climate and the national climate itself had drastically shifted. Um, and so now I think there's a lot more conversation coming from the top down about mental health as something that is a part of community care and is a part of our collective responsibility and that one person's mental health doesn't just influence their individual mental health. Um, your individual mental health also influences the wellness of your community and your workplace. And I think that's where the conversation about, you know, people leaders and assisting them and their wellness and what trickles down to the people that they supervise comes into play as well. So I've, I think I've definitely seen the shift of conversations about mental health as something that concerns the individual more towards something that influences the collective. Well, I definitely echo that. And again, most, most of my experience has been with, um, with CAPS and with students, but I think I think there's a very strong parallel, and I think it parallels the larger discussion in, about mental health in general. But certainly when I first got here and in my training, which was uh, you know back in the 90s, almost all of the emphasis, at least in my training, uh, was on the individual, you know, on what ha happens between the years. And I remember you know, one of my supervisors, who I respected him immensely. He was a brilliant man, but he was old school, you know? And I remember him saying specifically, you know, it's like it doesn't matter, you know, the person's color or race. Everybody's the same. Everybody's equal. You know, we all have, you know, all these intrapsychic, you know, processes and, and conflicts and things like that. And even when I first got the camps, there was really not much discussion in terms of DEI. That gradually increased over my time there. Mm -hmm. And and like, you know, like these insidious terms like social justice started creeping into the conversation, yeah, which yeah. was which was never Scary. heard. You know? Like in 1999, social justice, what's that? That was not part of the conversation. Right. And so I think more and more I think we expanded our perspective to include the fact that, you know, we're, 
we are individuals, yes, indeed, but we exist in the community.、Mm-hmm. We exist in systems. We exist in a larger context, which really influence and affect our mental health. So I, th- I think that broader conversation has definitely evolved over time,、yeah. uh, and I think I think that has also it parallels、uh, just much more openness about talking about mental health. That people talk about it much more now in just everyday terms. Yeah, I love both of those perspectives that you both mentioned in terms of how this conversation has expanded from an individual to this larger community.、Uh, and I think it's so true that it's it's now becoming a little bit more common. You know, discussions with individuals within teams to talk about mental health. We, I mean, we know. I know that within a team context, we talk about it slightly differently to say, make sure you're taking care of yourself, and you know that way you can show up as your authentic self to work. And so those types of conversations are happening, which I'm so glad to hear. And yet, we know that there are still barriers that exist,、mm-hmm. right? And so, from your perspective, what are some of the barriers that you've seen employees, you know, have in in order to access mental health resources? I think there's still a stigma attached to mental health, you know, and and, and I think、uh, for a variety of reasons, you know, some of it maybe cultural, some of it is individual, family, gender, you know, all, all kinds of reasons. I think there's still people who are reluctant to、uh, seek out mental health services, you know. And again, I I often joke that you know to this day my own family has no idea what it is that I do for a living, you know, they don't understand this concept. Like you, you just talk to people. I mean, how does that help? You know, and 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 these problems often seem so amorphous. It's not like I can show you on an X-ray like what the problem is. And I think Cornell in particular too. I think so many people、uh, come to Cornell because they are smart and tough and self-reliant. You know, they push themselves, and so oftentimes I think there there's a certain、um, ethos of like you know I'll just plow through this. I'm going to push through this. Which I think runs counter to the to the fact that you know I need to sort of like admit that I can't handle this,、mm-hmm. you know I need to admit that I need help. I need I need to be vulnerable to somebody else, you know. And I think Cornell, there's so many parts of Cornell where it's so important to be tough, to to show that you're tough and you can take it. And I think a lot of people suffer with things like imposter syndrome, where you want to you know project a certain persona and you don't want to admit. That maybe you know inside you're soft and squishy and, and and scared, you know. So I think some of those things make it kind of difficult for people to access help. Yeah, yeah. I I want to echo all of that.、Um, I think that there are access barriers within the Ithaca community itself as well, like wait times.、Um, we we talk a lot about the really high wait times for private practice providers in the Ithaca community. And how that can be discouraging for folks seeking help,、um, and to expand on that notion of culture, gender, race, one's various intersecting identities being something that can factor in to access. I mean, we know that there's a real dearth of black and brown providers in the Ithaca area.、Um, there's a real dearth of providers who specialize in issues affecting and surrounding queer identities, trans providers, or providers who focus in and specialize in concerns surrounding trans communities. And so, I think that knowing that there aren't providers in your midst who Share your identities,、um, and and just not being able to trust that if there is a provider who doesn't share any of your identities, that they're actually able to see your identities and honor them in session.、Um, I think that can pose a real 
barrier to access as well. Um, I think that a lot of private practice providers beyond FSAP, they tend to accept Cornell insurances, but you know, depending on the way your health insurance plan falls uh, as a Cornell employee specifically, I, I think that can pose a real issue, um, a real access issue for folks as well, especially for folks who are maybe on Medicaid and want to see someone in person. So it can be tough. <laughs> it can be tough out here for sure. And I know that FSAP is a real boon and a real blessing for a lot of Cornell employees and their spouses who do receive the type of benefits that make them FSAP eligible, but not everyone in Cornell's population has that. And so I think that, you know, if you're someone who is maybe a temporary staff member at Cornell and you've been at Cornell for a few years, but you're still not eligible to enroll in any Cornell health insurance plans, you've got no insurance, you know there's this free mental health service um, housed within Cornell, but it doesn't apply to you, that's a barrier too. It is. You know, I, I, I'm finding myself sort of seeing a connection between a couple of things that you just talked about, uh, both of you, and that is this shift at recognizing that if you are struggling with something that's infecting your mental health, that that is not necessarily all a problem that lies solely within you. No. You know, it is, it, you know, it's impacted by the environment that you're in, you know, what is going on around you and how that's impacting you and kind of realizing that, which is why I think people might have trouble admitting that they need help because, like, they're still succumbing to that idea that there's something wrong with me if I can't just mm-hmm. push through it, as opposed to recognizing it as, no, <laughs> I'm kind of, you know, at the mercy of the environment and the stressors yeah. that that's bringing about who I am. And I say that to say then what you just talked about, Jasmine, about the lack of access to providers who may get that. Yeah. Really, it's not just about you can't find somebody who looks like you. It's about you can't find somebody who understands that some of what you are dealing with is not because of something within you, but because of how the environment, you know, is is, um, reacting to you, treating you, whatever. As somebody who has a very real disability lived experience, I can say that it has been extremely hard, borderline impossible, to ever find a therapist who would talk with me about my disability experience through that social construct Mm -hmm. lens, Mm -hmm. right, as Mm -hmm. opposed to just trying to help me be able to be okay with, you know, the fact that I have these problems, you know, and it's like, no, that's not what I want to talk about. I'm fine with who I am. I'm fine with the fact that it's everybody else that's got the problem. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Trying to find a provider who gets that is borderline impossible, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. It's about accessing people who understand what's really going on and can help us through that. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, and won't reinforce our various identities as kind of problems to cope with, mm-hmm. but parts of us that exist and should be honored and that the systems that we live within aren't able to honor. Yes. And that can be such a big part of why we experience mental health struggles. Now, you know, we talk about this, right, in terms of that there are two of you. <laughs> and I don't know how many, you know, within the larger FSAP department, but because of this lack of access uh, in, for in various forms, um, FSAP can't be the only answer that employees have. That you know, way you alone cannot be the person that speaks to you know ten thousand employees that that Cornell No, I has, cannot. Right? For the yeah. record, <laughs> yeah, and no one person should be. No, either. exactly, exactly. So, what other resources are available to employees? 
you know, I think one of the resources uh, that, that's underutilized are the managers themselves and mm-hmm. people leaders. And, and again, I, I think, you know, when you think about the fact that we spend half our waking lives at work, yeah. I, th- I think, you know, our, our work environment really has a huge impact on our mental health and, and, and how we manage mental health. And so I think probably one of the top topics that we talk about is the work environment. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think that alone can can play a huge role in supporting people or making things worse, and oftentimes are the problem themselves. Yeah. And again, I think I think one of the things that is, I guess, paradoxically has been good about COVID, if, if you can call it that, is the expansion of Zoom and telehealth services. Because I think physical access was a problem for many people, especially for for hourly employees. You know, it takes time to come down to the college town office and find parking. And we weren't seeing folks um, in New York City before the pandemic. Right. And so now I I think, you know, and again, it doesn't solve the problem, but it has helped greatly that people can like hop out into the parking lot. You know, even I've I've, I've done sessions with people on rooftops, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and they can just we can do it by Zoom and we can serve them. Um, I think in terms of other services in, in the community, I mean, I think there are some programs in the community. There are clinics. There's Tompkins County Mental Health. You know, there are things like that in nature. Uh, but there are also, also programs that, that can help because not everything's necessarily mental health, you know. So yeah. there are places like the Ombuds Office. Uh, there's Title IX. Uh, there, there are other sort of support resources that can help people with the problems that they're dealing with. Because, again, not everything is necessarily a mental health problem. You know, it's like just because somebody's struggling, I don't think we necessarily have to throw counselors at them. There are other people and other resources that can help. So I think Cornell and the Ithaca community has a variety of resources, you know, that can help. They're not necessarily just counseling. But in terms of counseling, as Jasmine said, you know, relatively limited. You know, we are a small town. Cost is an issue. Insurance is an issue. Access still continues to be an issue. So that's still an unmet need. Well, and I think that we are going to really be real about owning the fact that our workplace environment impacts us in negative ways, too, <laughs> not just positive ways that we have to be real about so that what is our responsibility in the workplace to support one another's mental health. So I guess I'd like to talk about that a little bit more. Like, you know, what can I do mm-hmm. as a coworker? What yeah. can I do as a manager to be more supportive of that? What do, yeah. you, what do you guys think? Well, Erin, I think that's a really good point, you know, especially if we're talking about mental health as a form of community care and as mm-hmm. something that falls down to a communal responsibility and not just, you know, yes. your individual, your symptoms that you have to manage and that FSAP can be a catch-all for. Because I, I agree. I think that FSAP can kind of be discussed as a catch-all mm-hmm. for any form of personal struggle that employees may be experiencing. And, and we're happy to help as we can. Um, But you're right. We're not the only resource way. You've given off a really rich collection of resources that can assist too. Mm -hmm. But I think when when it comes to the question of how else can coworkers support, how else can people leaders support, you know, I think if, as Wei said, our working lives take up a huge chunk of the way we spend our time, then I think a really big part of that is just of, of, of that form of support and care is just recognizing that, yeah, we've got to be here for a really big part of our waking lives. And so work, even if it takes up a lot of our lives, it is not our lives. And it is not everything. Um, I think that something that can really induce a lot of mental health struggles in folks at Cornell is the urgency culture that that a lot of a lot of departments and units within Cornell University operate under and so i think a big part of it is recognizing that this work may be important but 
a lot of it is actually not life and death. I mean, I think that there are people who <laughs> who work at Cornell who do work that that actually can be a matter of life and death. Yeah, I think of, of um, our colleagues at the vet school particularly. But I think just recognizing that we're all human and humans are messy and humans cannot be expected to work within productivity standards that call for a hundred percent of our capacity for excellence a hundred percent of the time and that we're going to have off days we're going to have days when we're just not our best when we're messy and proactively creating cultures of kindness around that I also think that if we're acknowledging mental health as something that exists within the context of our social systems and and systems of domination and oppression that we all operate within, such as racism, such as sexism, such as queerphobia, transphobia, phobias around disability and, and ableism, then I do believe it is the responsibility of everyone within a workplace, but specifically within people leaders themselves to own that. Um, to acknowledge that and to support a culture of continued learning and unlearning around all of that. Yeah, no, no, I agree. I mean, I, I think, you know, again, I think people say this a lot these days, but it's okay to be not okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, really and, embody and that. we need to live that, that it's okay sometimes to be not okay. And it's okay sometimes for other people to be not okay. And that means, yeah, they do need, you know, flexibility sometimes. Sometimes they do need a conversation. And, and I don't mean for people to, you know, be therapists, you know, but sometimes, you know, just to talk to somebody and just say, how are you doing? You know, what can I do to help? You know, just having real life conversations. And again, oftentimes that's, that's extremely helpful because it creates an atmosphere where it is okay to be human. You know, you don't have to have your game face on all the time. Again, I think, you know, um, a lot of people at Cornell oftentimes feel like they do. And again, as Jasmine said, you know, I think we are more important ultimately than our jobs. I mean, I'm sorry, but that's just, that's, <laughs> that's just, no, we are. you know, that's just what my belief is. And, and I, honestly, we're more important than Cornell. <laughs> And, you know, I hope I don't get into too much trouble for saying that. It is, you know. And, and so I think we need to sort of like refocus our priorities away from efficiency and productivity yeah. being, you know, the, the very, I'm not saying they're not important, but they can't override everything else. Yeah, but I think that um, you're hitting on something really important, which is it's a culture shift. You know, it's a culture because this is a culture that very much um, pushes excellence, right, success, productivity, all those things. And there's a good reason for that. You know, we wouldn't be the institution we are if we didn't push those things. However, it does start to feel a little bit like a mixed message when you are told to prioritize self-care, you know, and take good care of yourself and support one another while simultaneously being told, we need that tomorrow, yes, <laughs> right? Yes. We need that tomorrow. We need you to do more with less, right? You have, you have less resources in your office. You, got, you still got to do not just the same amount, but more. Right. Oh, and by the way, take time off. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Take care of yourself, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's something there that can, and I, I, can't, that, I can't imagine that's helping our mental health, no. <laughs> yeah. you know, to get that mixed message, yeah. And I think that's the biggest source of cynicism that I see. Mm -hmm. And I saw that a lot among students, and I see that among faculty and staff, is that mixed message. Yeah. You know, they are being told that, you know, your mental health is important. You need to go take care of yourself. And by the way, I need this by five today. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. And it, it's so hard. I've, I've had so many conversations with people that are like, they're like, I don't want to take a vacation because when I come back, like nobody else is on vacation, right, at the same time. So my work is just piling. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And so what yeah. am I going to it's more of the idea of what am I going to come back to, yeah. which is what's scary for me. And so I would rather not go at all yeah. and not take that time for myself. I think it, it really calls upon us to question how are we measuring success in right. the workplace, right? right? It's really challenging us to think about, do we need to completely change what the definition of that is, mm-hmm. you know, of what a successful workplace is? And right. maybe it's not just about what we're producing, but it is about what we're doing to ourselves and to one another. And changing the incentive structure. Yes. You know, you know, yes. you know managers and people leaders, oftentimes they are rewarded for efficiency, Correct. for productivity. Yeah. And so I think somehow changing the incentive structure where we are evaluated on the communities that we build, oh, you yes. know, uh, where we can be evaluated on, on how supportive we are to our staff or one another instead of just how many uh, grants did you bring in this yeah. year, how much yeah. money did you, you know, how many classes did you teach? How are we developing as people rather than how are we developing yeah. as right. an institution capable? Yeah. How is your staff doing? Right. Right, right. And I think that even the conversation about self-care as a form of supporting the work. I mean, I think this would call for a really big and pivotal conversation about what do we want the role of work in our lives to be in general and and what is the role of a workplace in our lives, truly? Um, What are we meant to support and develop? And if mental health is a part of that, then I think as true as the fact is that when our self-care flourishes and our mental health flourishes, then so does our work. I think we also need to edit the messaging around supporting our mental health to support the work specifically Um, because our mental health doesn't exist for work. It it exists for us as people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think the conversation then becomes how can it support peoplehood? I don't think that's a word, but I'm inventing it. Okay. It is now. I'm a poet by training, so I can invent words. That's right. That's right. And, 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 And yeah, is the workplace truly capable of supporting that as we know it, as we practice in it. My mind is just really mm-hmm. thinking about what if this was a more active part of our annual performance evaluation right. <laughs> process. You know, you both make a really good point about, you know, what it is we're focusing on when we're evaluating somebody's ability to be a good worker. And we're not necessarily including these things that you're talking about. And I just think that, that is such a good point. I mean, and, th- and this whole conversation is, this, I, I keep having this one thought in my head as, as we're talking, at least as part of the conversation is this, you know, we, we've been talking about the idea that mental health is, it's more than just the individual, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it expands to the community. And in, in our conversation, the part that we keep coming back to is, I don't want to say resolutions, but maybe the resources also lie within the community more than mm-hmm. just, more right. than just the, the FSAP, more than the, the counselor and the individual one-on-one counselor conversations, the resources and the solutions solutions to all of these concerns also lie within the larger community as that's kind of that's what I feel yeah. like our conversation yeah. is, is I, know, I agree us. I agree and I think of mutual aid too mm-hmm. and how you can't really therapy yourself out of never having enough money to eat mm-hmm. right. Um, right. you can't really therapy yourself out of being one missed paycheck away from houselessness. You right. can't you can't therapy yourself out of chronic pain. Um, and so how do we support each other? Um, I think food access is a mental health issue. And I think that when I'm existing in communities that I know I can call upon, if ever I'm struggling around food access or difficulties paying for my housing, being able to call upon communal resources in that way. Yeah, 
that helps my mental health. Yeah, of <laughs> um, course, of course. <laughs> and so you're right, Toral, you know, it, it, it's all so interconnected. What you just said made me think about the idea that Cornell is striving to be a health-promoting campus. And I'll put health in quotations because to me, that speaks to almost everything that you just mentioned, right? All of the resources that you mentioned, more than just the physical well-being of, of an individual. And so I would love to, to kind of hear from both of you, what does that mean, the term health-promoting campus mean to, to you? What could it mean? Yeah, what could, <laughs> or what could it mean for our mm. campus, right, and our community? I mean, I think this is a vague term, but it is really about changing the culture. Mm -hmm. And again, changing the priorities, changing what we value, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and I don't think it's a zero-sum gain. It doesn't mean that we have to sacrifice excellence. You know, I, I think that's the counter-argument because, you know, Cornell, you know, we're a fancy-schmancy top-tier university. Uh, you know, we're Ivy League, you know. It doesn't mean we necessarily have to sacrifice those things. But we don't have to sacrifice people either. And, 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 but I think historically that has been sort of like the, the, the Faustian bargain that, you know, we will chew through people in order to maintain this excellence. Not explicitly, but practically I think that has been the case for a lot of, a lot of offices and departments where they feel like it's almost it's easier to replace people than to change how we do things. Mm. So, I mean, I think, I think it's a real challenge because I think a lot of the incentives are built to support the way things are. So it really means changing and incentivizing different things. Because, you know, we're human beings. We don't do anything unless there's something in it for us. <laughs> and so we... Maybe like that sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it, it needs to be more than a slogan. I mean, Cornell has had more than a share of slogans and, and yeah. initiatives in the past. Yeah. It really means changing things at a fundamental level and changing systems, yes. you know. And so it really needs a top-to-bottom review about what it is that we're doing and then, you know, really asking tough questions. Uh, is this helping our, our, our people or not? And if not, then what, if anything, can we change about it? And it does mean sometimes, yeah, that report doesn't go out till the morning, yep. you know? Yep. Sometimes that means that some things don't get done exactly when you want them to get done, you know, mm -hmm. but it will be good enough and it'll probably be plenty excellent in the end anyway. So I think Cornell needs to be a much more flexible institution as a whole. But again, I think it's, it's deep-rooted in its culture and in its history. And I think we need to push back a little bit on that as being the sole source of your identity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to echo all of what you said, Way I think that being a health-promoting campus in the context of Cornell anyway does mean a culture shift mm -hmm. um, and a shift in the way we think of excellence and what success means. And perhaps we think of excellence as in terms of supporting people being human rather than production goals. And as a Black woman and, and in my academic training that I've received around English, around African-American studies, I think when I think of Cornell being a health-promoting campus, I think of it letting go of its white supremacy culture, which I think envelopes a lot of what we've talked about, right? Mm -hmm. That that constant sense of urgency, the perfectionism, the ways we construct professionalism and how that usually means not acknowledging our little human tics um, mm -hmm. and reiterating white dress standards, white modes of speech. Um, I think that Cornell being a health-promoting campus really means letting go of the way that whiteness has physically and fiscally and spiritually constructed its identity as an institution. And I don't know what that looks like for Cornell. 
frankly. I, I don't know what that looks like at Cornell. Um, and I think that if Cornell is to exist as an institution with hierarchical leadership, I think it means inviting and radically including indigenous and black leadership and worldviews into the way Cornell functions. You really are, I think, tying back to the fact that this is incredibly systemic. Yeah. We can only do so much interpersonally. You know, yeah. if we're not able to recognize the systems that have been created that actually hurt all of us. You can't dismantle something without knowing what it is you want to build. Yep. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's right. where I think as a culture we also go wrong sometimes. We see something yep. broke, we just want to break it, yep. but then we don't actually know, well, wait, what do we mm-hmm. want to build right. in this place? And we just right. keep rebuilding the same version yeah. of it. Yeah, because of a that's, that's the model we have. Yeah, yep. exactly. You know, I just have to say, um, as a precursor to my next question, you know, both of you work undoubtedly work with some of our employees at some of the most challenging and darkest times. And as somebody who has utilized FSAP, I can say that, you know, the whoever the therapist was I dealt with, I'm sure I was like the 50th difficult story they heard that day. And then, you know, Jasmine, you might not be the therapist, but you're the front line. You're mm-hmm. hearing yeah. it. And I distinctly remember having a conversation with you just when I was calling to make an appointment. And I distinctly remember the lovely care that you showed toward me, your demeanor. You made it so much easier to have made that phone call and to and to complete the, the action of actually making the appointment. And barely even remember what I talked about with the therapist, but yet I remember talking to you. Mm-hmm. And I remember already feeling better after I hung up the phone. And I didn't even tell you what was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't even know. It was just the fact that, that you, you know, talk to me for five minutes and, and beyond just what day do you want to come in, what time, you know, beyond yeah. all that, right? It was just... So you too are hearing people, you know, and you're often probably the first one to hear people at their darkest times and their most challenging times. And I remember hanging up and thinking, again, how many people did she talk to today? And yet she was able to be that way with me. You know, how many people do you talk to in a week? And way, how many people are you listening to apparently on rooftops, you know, in a given week? (laughs) You know, so so I say all that to say, A, thank you. Thank you for being the people that you are. Thank you for being willing to be those people for those of us who need it. But I also genuinely care about the two of you. Yeah. And I want to know, you know, what, how is it that you can keep doing this, right? How is it that you keep doing this? What is sustaining your ability to keep being these wonderful people and resources? What is sustaining you to keep Mm. doing this work? Erin, I am so glad that I was able to be a source of support and comfort to you when you called. That means so much to me, truly, that that I was able to help even in that small way and that it was real. Um, yeah, way I, I don't know about you, but hmm, sustaining interest and ability to do this work is work just like anything else. Um, because the compassion fatigue can be very real. Mm-hmm. And you're right, Aaron. We, we do hear a lot of intense stories. I may not be giving the therapy, but you're right. I do experience a lot of emotional intensity when people make that call, especially if they're in a really, really challenging place or if they describe themselves or someone else as being in a crisis because experiencing someone else being in a crisis can be just as scary as if you're having that crisis yourself. And so I think 
this sounds really simple, but I don't think that just because it's simple doesn't mean it's not necessarily complicated. I always try to remind myself that the people who are calling and who are making that call are doing so because the pain that they have is real Mm -hmm. um, and the help that they need is real. And it's a very vulnerable thing to make that call. And so even if I may not have it that day and whatever compassion fatigue I may be operating with is very, very present, um, I always try to take a deep breath and center and remind myself that just inner process, that, that inner work of being fully present with someone else when they're on the line, because it helps me. Yeah. I mean, I think some of the things we talked about before that we need to apply to ourselves. We need to set limits and boundaries. We can't do it all, you know? And one of the things that I think that has helped me last as long as I have, because I get asked that question occasionally, <laughs> like, how the hell did you last this long? You know? Yeah. It is setting, you know, clear limits and boundaries about what you can do and when you're going to do it mm-hmm. and taking the time when you need it yeah. and being flexible when you need it. I think those things are essential. And certainly in my role as, as, as a counselor, I think a certain amount of humility is ne- necessary too because I can't fix it all. I don't have the power, and, and I think I need right. to let go of this idea, the savior idea, that it, I have to do it all. I have need to fix everyone. And, and I say, you know, I am just a small part in this person's life. You know, I see this person an hour every other week maybe. I can be helpful, uh, but again, I, I, I cannot expect myself. I don't have the power. I don't have the skill. I don't have the knowledge to quote-unquote fix this person. And so I think reminding myself of that can relieve some of the burden because I think sometimes, you know, you carry a great burden when you hear these stories. And you, as a human being, you want to go in there and you want to make it better. (laughs) Right now. And and, and I totally get that impulse. And I think a lot of people leaders oftentimes experience that impulse. I want to make this person better now. How do we make this person better now? It's not a bad impulse, but, but we need to sort of examine that. And it's like, maybe I can't. And that's okay. Because it's okay to be not okay. And there's only so much that I can do. There's only so much that is within my sphere of influence that I can help this person with. And that's all I can do. And I think that helps, um, you know, maintain some some equanimity in, in the face of, of, of a lot of these challenges. Because, again, sometimes you feel awful and you hear terrible things and people are in great pain. But it's like you can be there with them. You can share that space with them. But, again, we can't fix them. Ultimately, though, I think one of the real, I guess, joys of this job, it is really a privilege. In the end, it is a privilege because I think counseling is about storytelling, mm. you know? It's about telling our stories, about constructing our stories, about building better stories, healthier stories, yeah. listening to stories. And it's such a privilege to hear people's stories every single day. I mean, I think when somebody sits down with a total stranger, really, right, and shares something deeply personal with you, it is a gift. And so every day to be able to be a recipient of such gifts from people. I think that is really, truly, like, amazing. It's a pretty cool job if you think about it, you know? It's, it's like every day I get to listen to, like, This American Life or something like that, you know, because, again, because people tell the most amazing stories. Yeah. And a lot of these stories are, are very sad. A lot of these stories are very painful and difficult to hear. Some of them are pretty funny. You'd be surprised how much laughter happens in counseling sometimes. Yeah, that's true. You know, mm-hmm. uh, but they're all unique, amazing human stories. And I know all the stories that I've heard over the years has enriched my life greatly, I think has helped me grow as a person. And so I think that part of it also helps me get through the day. 
I know both of you think of this position way, as you just mentioned, as a privilege. And I, and I have to say that we as a community are privileged to have both of you be part of, of this greater Cornell campus and, and this larger community as well. I bet you say that to all the guests. <laughs> In different ways, but... I like that perspective way of you saying it's a gift. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, I probably want to re-gift a lot of those gifts, but, but that's why you're doing the job and not me, so... Okay. <laughs> As we wrap up, I'll ask one last question. Um, What suggestions or takeaway do you have for our listeners who are feeling challenged right now with supporting their own uh, well-being or their own mental health or that of their colleagues or their workplace? I guess off the top of my head, I'm just going to go back. And I know we've said this multiple times, but I think it is okay to be not okay. Because so often, I think I have met with people who are struggling with the fact that they're not okay, who feel bad for feeling bad. And oftentimes I feel like that becomes more of the problem than whatever it is that they're struggling with because they feel like somehow they're morally deficient, they're weak. You know, what is my problem? Why am I feeling this way? You know, I, I must be crazy. I'm, I'm, you know, whatever it is. And so I think simply removing that self-flagellation part or that part that says it's not okay for me to be okay, I need to fix it now. I mean, I think the urgency culture permeates us individually as well. I need to make this feeling go away. I need to fix this problem now. I need to make it go away. It just makes everything worse. And so I think I oftentimes think that part of my job is, or part of our collective job is like, let's, life is hard enough. Let's not make it any harder than is absolutely necessary. You know, let's keep the pain and suffering down to a bare minimum. You know, I mean, it's inevitable, but it's there. Let's keep it to a minimum. And so I think if we can do that, I think that's helpful. And I think looking at the community part helps. Because oftentimes people blame themselves for problems that are really much broader than they are. And so if we can situate our responsibility where it belongs, just a small portion of our suffering, you know, and then there are a lot of things going on out there that we have no control over that contributes to our pain. And we're not to blame for that. Yeah, as always, echoing that, you know, when I think of listeners who may be feeling challenged with supporting either their own own mental health or that of their workplace and or colleagues, what immediately comes to mind is you can't do it all and you can't fix it all. And being challenged with supporting either your own mental health or that of a colleague is very human. And you deserve to experience your humanity so deeply that you also experience your imperfection and that your imperfection contains its own blessings, its own joys, its own lessons, and that you cannot be expected to fix it all or hold it all, and nor should you. And to just echo that that through line of there being a limit to what can be accomplished There's only so much you can do. FSAP is a resource that can assist with that holding, that question of where do I put this? What do I do with this? How do I move through with this? I think those questions are very human. I think I would just say that I I hope any listener who is struggling knows how worthy they are of help. Whatever form that may take. I really like that. Well, thank you both so much. I feel like I've been to church. I like had a spiritual. (laughs) (laughs) This has really been uh, unbelievably lovely talking with you all. Thank you. And I know it's going to be for our listeners, too. Thank you both so much. Thank you. It has been such an honor. Yeah, thanks for inviting us. Oh, 
tutorial, what a really good episode. Uh, you always say amazing, and I, I tell know. you, we can't say every episode's amazing, but you know what? Yes, we can. Yes, we that can. That was amazing. That was. Um, I know I'm going to be thinking about some of the things that we talked about for a long, long time after that. I already, you know, I think I couldn't stop myself during the conversation from sharing a lot of my aha moments, but I think really, I guess what I'm really left sitting here with mostly is just the emphasis that, that our conversation took on recognizing that mental health and well-being is a collective responsibility. It is. We have finally recognized in, you know, the 2020 decade that it is a collective problem. Yeah. So therefore, <laughs> it takes a collective responsibility to really think about how we're addressing it. Yeah, and as you as you mentioned when you when you asked that question that, that this is a conversation that's being held at, in our government by the Surgeon General, right? Mm -hmm. As well as the Center for Disease Control. So that makes me think that it's also a worldwide yes. conversation. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think one thing that really stood out to me when we talk about FSAP and the services that they offer, like many people, I had always assumed it to be a counselor and uh, you know, a client right. conversation right. responsibility. I actually absolutely love the fact that they also offer services to supervisors yes. and people leader who mm -hmm. are, are leading a group of individuals who might be experiencing some challenging yeah. times right now. What an amazing resource that is. Yeah. And I, you know, one thing I didn't mention during the call, and I'm not sure that they, I can't remember if they emphasize this or not, but I have called them before. Not because I necessarily had something that required therapy mm -hmm. or counseling, but because I simply ran into a really difficult problem, Yeah, you know, with a supervisor, and I couldn't quite figure out how to navigate it. So I wasn't expecting it to become a therapeutic relationship right. or anything like that. I just needed a couple conversations with somebody objective who wasn't involved, who had that expertise to help me navigate through a temporary difficult situation. Yeah. You know? And we also talked about, you know, that FSAP is, is a small unit yes. that support a lot of faculty yes. and staff. And so I, I love the conversation about the additional resources that are available yeah. and, and the idea that if we talk about mental health as a community-wide challenge or uh -huh. community-wide experiences, then the resources and the solutions also lie within that larger community. And it's not just one or two people that can, you know, that can be the resource. Yes, and, and it, it lies within each of us. Right. You know, you don't have to be affiliated with a particular resource to be able to support somebody. Right. You know, and any one of us can do that. And I think that's an important takeaway that, you yeah. know, we all do have the ability to provide some level of support or care, mm -hmm. awareness, connection, whatever that may be. Yeah, because um, yeah, I hear that a lot. People say, well, I'm not a therapist. What am I supposed to do? Right. Well, that, they don't need you to be a therapist. Right. You know, they just need you to care, to give a crap. Like, literally, that's yeah. all they need, <laughs> that's you know? Exactly um, and just, we all have the ability to do that, but we have to feel empowered to do it and to right. realize it's okay. Just like Way kept saying, it's okay to not be okay. Yes. It's also okay to not be the one that's trying to solve it or fix it. You just are there to be there. Correct. Yeah, and that know? leads me to the point that Jasmine made, which is it's it's important for all of us to remember that that we are worthy of getting the help, right? Yes. And I thought that was a great message yes. for all of our, our listeners. Um, it was also just really nice to hear more about Way and Jasmine's own yes. journeys. Because, again, in the roles that they're in, they're often in, you know, they spend the majority of their time listening to others. Yes. <laughs> and we don't always get to hear, well, what's their story? What's yep. their, you know, situation? It was really neat 
to hear how they just have girl pads were, but, you know, when Ray talked about how, you know, he was originally really interested in engineering and really wanted to do that, but then felt like he was only going to be succumbing to the stereotype of going to engineering, and so he talked himself out of it. Yeah. Now, while that obviously is a huge benefit to us that yeah. he did that, right, that he's doing what he's doing, it made me realize that, you know, there's another side, there's another victim, I guess you could say, to stereotypes. And it's that people who might actually be good, you know, he was good at that. He could have done that. But because of these awful stereotypes, he felt like he had to, you know, change his passion. And then, and then the last point, Aaron, I'll have to say that your, your story about Jasmine really, mm-hmm. really stood out to me and really yeah. stuck with me. Her demeanor, the way she spoke to you, it's something that you still have recalled, you know, yes. many years. Yes, yes, Years exactly. later, and I just wanted Which, to kind of share again, that. Again, sure, that was a job, but not necessarily. You right. know, how many providers' offices do you call where it's pretty much cut to the chase? Right. Literally the first words out of their mouth, date of birth. Right. You know? Date <laughs> yeah. of birth, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's going to have a very different impact on your overall, you know, experience and then, yeah. you know, Jasmine asking me, how am I doing today? Right. Just very different and very meaningful. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, so I just thought that story was wonderful. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's actually a good example. I didn't get to mention this, but somebody uh, said recently in a meeting I was in when we were talking about this very thing about creating a better culture for well-being at Cornell, and they said, you know, constantly telling people to engage in self-care is important and good, but the reality is <laughs> you can't do self-care by yourself. Right. Yeah, and, and what their point was is if we don't have an, a culture that supports people taking breaks mm-hmm. when they need to take it, right, having privacy to engage in a telehealth appointment, you know, doing what they need to do, if we're not creating a culture that supports that, then they can't do self-care. And I think that that's a lot of what um, everything today kind of come back to as to why it is a collective responsibility. We, we have to help one another to be able to do self-care. Yep. And we'll leave the audience with, you know, something that Wei and Jasmine both said, which is it's okay not to be okay. And to remember that you are all worthy of getting help. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of the Department of Inclusion and Belonging in collaboration with the Cornell Broadcast Studio. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and submit a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners to find us and the show. For the latest updates on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging at Cornell, be sure to visit diversity.cornell.edu. My name is Erin Sumber-Chase. And my name is Toral Patel. We would also like to thank our co-producer and sound engineer, Bert Odom-Reed, as always, for making us sound amazing each and every episode. Thanks, Thanks, Bert. Bert!